This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. This episode is brought to you in part by D6 Conference, a pivotal event for family ministry dedicated to nurturing discipleship based on Deuteronomy 6. Empower your ministry team and family by joining us. Register now at d6conference.com. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. Esau McCauley is contributing opinion writer to the New York Times and an assistant professor of New Testament at Wheaton College, author of a lot of books. I'll talk about at least two of them here in just a minute. Uh, I read Esau, everything that he puts uh, in the Times. It's always both beautifully written and really gripping and compelling in argument. And the same thing is true I was reading an early copy of a book that you all will be able to see uh, later on this year, I believe in September, but uh, it's called How Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. And man, it is the best thing he's written. I mean, it, <laughs> it really is. It really is. And that is saying something. But I, I found myself just lost in the book, which is about the highest compliment that I can have when you're reading something and you, you kind of lose track of what time it is and where you are. It is really poetic and prophetic at the same time. And that's hard to do. And so I'm really thrilled to talk to Esau McCauley. Welcome to the show today. Thank you. That's, that's very high praise. And it was terrifying writing a memoir. So I'm glad that at least one person likes it. It's one of those books that I think people are going to remember long after they've read it. So I look forward to hearing about our listeners uh, listening, uh, reading it later or listening to it in an audio book. Yeah. Uh, but also, uh, you're the author of the book Reading While Black, and we're going to yeah. talk about that in terms of biblical interpretation. I laughed about your talking about being on a panel uh, one time. Oh. In a mostly white audience. And yeah. Why don't you tell us what happened? Oh, yeah. The book opened um, in, with this scene. with uh, I'm sitting on this panel with Lecrae. Uh -huh. And they asked the question, um, what is the most racist thing you ever experienced? Or something like that. And I, I, I don't answer the question. Um, but the way, the way that what I was trying to get at is like how... African-Americans are taught to tell their story. 
And how the way we are taught to tell our story sometimes normalizes our suffering. Mm. In other words, there's this assumption that we went through these horrible things and we overcame them. And it's the job of the reader to condemn the horrible things that we went through and cheer for us as we kind of survive. But because I'm sitting on the stage, you know that whatever it was, I was going to survive. And so there's a way in which you're taught to tell the story of yourself as this heroic character who Mm. who overcame suffering and made it to the promised land. Mm. But the reason that I didn't tell um, that story um, or the story of what I experienced was because our stories were more than the worst things that happened to us. And that I don't want to tell a story where I was simply the hero who overcame these hard things, but that other people who didn't overcome those hard things, people who experienced racism and it broke them, their stories are important too. And so that was my way of saying in, in my book, I wanted to challenge kind of the traditional hero's journey that marks um, so many narratives. Yeah. I I laughed because your answer was, we'll pass on that one. And I thought, now that is a way to respond to a bad question. The the funny thing about it is I I wasn't sure because, you know, I went and looked it up. This is on YouTube. No offense to to the person who who asked the question because it wasn't hers. It was actually from the audience. And I said, did I actually say that? So I went and Googled it (laughs) on YouTube. And if you go and you go and look it and look it up, you can find this actual lecture and you can hear me saying, I think we'll pass. (laughs) Because I remember when when they asked the question, I looked at Lecrae and Lecrae looked at me. He's like, are we going to do this? And I was like, you know what, Lecrae, don't even worry about it. I'll I'll speak for the two of us. So he does. He may not know. I sent him a text that says, yeah, you're in the opening of my book, Lecrae. Just so you know. You might show up. You might just wonder what happened at that event. But it was a great event besides that one moment. What would, what, what would have been, for the for whoever asked that question, yeah. uh, for what they were actually trying to find out, yeah. what would have been a better question? Well, I think, I think that, that what they were trying to do was to inspire empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the purpose. So it wasn't actually a, um, the goal was, if people feel bad enough about racism, then maybe they will fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that, that we, you remember you seeing, remember this, right, Russell, a few, I forget when we did this, we always argued about stuff as Christians. Remember we had the war on empathy? Yes. Remember oh, yeah. this? It's like, yeah. oh, don't mm-hmm. be too empathetic. Right, right, And right. so what has happened is we've learned that telling these stories don't, doesn't work if people are determined not to be empathetic. They'll find a reason not to feel the feeling because they realize that feeling the feeling is the entryway into changing. And Mm. so we even have people who say as Christians, then you have to be careful of being too empathetic towards people who are poor, who are suffering. And so I don't know. So one one perfect example of this is a huge historical example. It's like Emmett Till's mother. Mm. Emmett Till is, you know, he's, he's murdered and she has an open casket um, funeral because she's, I want America to see what they did to my baby. Mm. And the idea is that if you show the open casket, America will see and then they'll stop. But there's always a segment of the population that just kind of sees empathy as dangerous. Now, of course, it's possible to be so empathetic that you're that, that you lose moral reasoning. Mm-hmm. But I think the ability to weep with those who weep is a, is a, is a basic Christian idea. Yeah. Well, why why do you think it is 
that we're we're in a situation where we're arguing about things as really basic as empathy with one another instead of actually getting to where the the real problems and issues are. I mean, doesn't it seem like we are constantly in the middle of these little fights about nothing uh, that seem to distract from what are really gaping chasms in front of us that need to be addressed? This will sound more polemical than I want to sound, but I can't think of it other than like, it seems that in certain circles, they're closing off all roads that might lead to real engagement in, in certain social issues as Christians. Mm. And so the problem isn't with empathy itself, it's where empathy leads. Mm. And so if I, if I know, for example, if I see what is happening to African-Americans or the water crisis that was going on in Flint or anything where someone is suffering, the immigrant crisis, Mm -hmm. and you say, I feel empathy for them. Mm -hmm. And that empathy leads you to reconsider position certain policies or issues, then that is seen as dangerous. So the the best way to prevent that is to kind of cut off these these pathways in. So for Mm -hmm. example, if you say, hey, you know, in the Bible, and I look in Isaiah and I see how Isaiah or any of the prophets care both about fidelity to the one true God and personal sin and structural injustices in society. Like these three things mm-hmm. are just in Isaiah. He has these concerns. Jesus shows these concerns. Well, the best, well, that's a problem because if the Bible says these things very clearly, then if you believe in the Bible, you have to deal with them. So the best way to do it is to actually not argue the exegesis, but to find a way to close off that exegetical discussion. And so what you do is you say any dis- discussion of structural sin is antithetical to the gospel, even if it's in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so you you find these um, these arguments that are used to fortify certain positions that are not actually biblically defensible. And that sounds more polemical than I want it to sound, but it's true. And so empathy is a problem because empathy is one tool that's supposed to open up the possibility of a Christian to care about some of the other suffering peoples of the world. And some of that suffering is seen as, that empathy for suffering is seen as theologically dangerous leading to error. But it, that doesn't necessarily have to happen. In other words, that that slippery slope, people don't always fall down it. Um, now it is possible for empathy to, to go too far, that empathy can so cloud our judgment that we lose track of truth. But that, that doesn't mean you kill empathy. It just means that you're discerning in your use of empathy. We, we tend to, and I don't know why, and maybe I have some, some opinions as to why, we want to shrink everything down to like what is and isn't in the gospel. Mm-hmm. And we then say, well, if it's not a part of the gospel, then I don't have to care about it. I say, well, what does Christianity teach? Mm-hmm. And when you begin to see what Christianity teaches, then the, 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 the scope of the conversation can enlarge and we can maybe make some progress. And like how the truths of Christianity inform the imagination that then influences how we live and, and, and function in society. Those are the kinds of things, right? What does yeah. it mean to be a Christian? And how does my, my status as a Christian shape how I see the world? And then how does that influence how I engage the world? Mm-hmm. And so I don't have to necessarily cite a Bible verse to justify a particular thing. I can say, this is how Christianity shapes how I view things. And then I present it to people to say, here's as best as I can discern a vision of how we might live together, influenced by what I think about 
what, what I think is true about the world because I'm a Christian. Um, and so that's, that's at least what I try to do is to try to help people see how Jesus shapes how I see the world, not necessarily show them, here's the Bible verse to justify every single decision that I make. here. If you're looking for another podcast that features inspiring conversations with religious leaders, authors, and artists, then I recommend listening to the acclaimed podcast, No Small Endeavor. Produced by Great Feelings Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests, like award-winning journalist and best-selling author Tim Alberta and civil rights hero Reverend James Lawson to ask what it means to live a life worth living. You can even hear from Russell Moore on No Small Endeavor. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times best-selling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Your book, A Reading While Black, really provocative title, of course, uh, echoing back to Driving While, while Black yeah. and, uh, and other things. Uh, th- there are a lot of people that would say, now, wait a minute, the Bible's the Bible and you don't have a particular interpretation because of, uh, because of your experiences or, or where, you, where you are. Yeah. So why would you do a book called Reading While Black and just say, reading the Bible? Yeah, I always say, I mean, people don't actually believe that. Yeah, right, <laughs> and, right. And, and, and this is at least important to understand by analogy. And this kind of helps people into it. So there's a there's something called the Journal for Scottish Theology. Mm-hmm. And I've never heard anyone email Scotland <laughs> and say, you can't have a Journal for Scottish Theology. There is no Scottish Theology. It's only <laughs> theology. Or we have a thing, British evangelicalism. Yeah. And anybody who's read British evangelicalism, J.I. Packer, John Stott, N.T. Wright, British evangelicalism has a slightly different vibe than American evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. Because we understand that the culture into which we come influences the way that we talk about things, but that doesn't rule out truth. I'll probably give you a less polemical one for people who want to clip this and take it out of context. <laughs> so anybody who studies the Reformation, this is true, you study Reformation, everybody understands you don't just begin with Luther, you put Luther in context. This is what's going on in Germany during his time. This was happening in the Catholic Church. This is how indulgences were, were, were functioning. In other words, Luther was not living in a decontextualized world. Luther was influenced by the particular things that happened in Germany at the time. Mm-hmm. And that led Luther to ask a particular set of questions. And then Luther, because of those questions, came to truthful statements about what the Bible actually said. In other words, Luther was influenced by his German context and politics and the Catholic Church of the time. And that sent him to the Bible with these kinds of questions. And because those experiences led him to ask questions of the Bible and he saw the Bible as God's word, he nonetheless came up with a true answer. Mm-hmm. And people will say the same thing. You can't understand Calvin without understanding Geneva. In other words, everybody else understands yeah. that just because you're influenced by your circumstances, it doesn't necessarily mean that you deny 
the ability to come to true statements. And so when I talk about African-American biblical interpretation, I'm not saying that um, African-Americans have state things that are true only to Mm African-Americans. I'm saying that our experiences cause us to bring certain questions to the biblical text. Other people might not ask, but when we ask those questions, the Bible is God's word to us, answers us. And because, you know, you ended up having in the Reformation a certain set of core principles that were that, that were existed apart from Luther and Calvin and all of these people. They're all existing at the time because they were all a part of these common sets of questions that came to common answers. And in the same way, African-Americans throughout American history had a common set of problems that were being pressed about pressed down upon them because they're African-American. Mm. What is a person? What is the relationship between Christianity and state religion and all of these things in, in, in the um, data, the, the, the theological conclusions they've come as, as an answer to that question is what I call African-American biblical interpretation. Mm. And that is no different than any textbook anywhere that talks about German theology, Scottish theology, British evangelicalism, Australian evangelicalism, American evangelicalism. Everybody gets a culture except for American-born ethnic minorities. Mm. And we tend to think that there's only one American culture, but there's American subcultures. And American subcultures sometimes have unique questions. And so I don't actually believe that the idea of socially located truth being also objectively true is actually controversial. What's controversial is I highlight the distinctive contributions of the black church, which is surprising, right? I didn't didn't actually think that that was going to be what people um, actually took as being the controversial part of the book. People have found the very idea more controversial than it is. And it's only because I took a general truth that existed in theological discourse and applied applied it to African-Americans. I remember a historian uh, talking one time about how early Christianity spread, first century uh, Christianity, and he was talking about uh, trading routes, carrying the gospel, and about treatment of women and, and, and all of these distinctives of Christianity. And he stopped to say, now some of you are going to say that I'm just giving a naturalistic or, or cultural explanation, uh, but I'm not. I'm, I'm telling you how the spirit was moving. Yes. Here and I, I thought that was a really good uh, explanation. That and, were... and I think I think that if you look in history, we tend to think of theology as this decontextualized thing, mm-hmm. but like God comes to us in and through culture, which is why anytime you want really to do good biblical studies, the first thing that you do is you look at the Greco-Roman Empire and the Jewish world of the first century, mm-hmm. and you said you can't understand Paul without understanding his context, even though Paul was influenced by Second Temple Judaism in the world in which he lived, in the Greco-Roman world, nonetheless, the things that he said were like true and applicable to other people. I'm not com- comparing like what I'm saying to, I'm not saying I'm Paul. That's not what I'm saying. Right. What I'm saying is his theology and is never decontextualized. Mm-hmm. It's the truth through culture, not truth around culture. So what, what would be some specific questions that the, the black church would ask that to other people might miss? In our time, a, per, a perfect. I'll give two very concrete ones. Very few of my white brothers and sisters have ever had to answer the question: Is Christianity a black religion? Mm. In other words, African Americans have to ask the question. We've been told most of our lives Christianity is a white man's religion, and it's alien to us. And so, b- because of that, in the black church in particular. 
there's been a tendency to highlight the universal nature of the gospel in a particular way. We're not the only ones who can say it, right? It's not that this mm-hmm. is something that's invisible to other people, but the, the idea of, of God's purposes, including all nations, is, is particularly emphasized in a unique way. A second one that, that gets to this is, is anthropology. Mm-hmm. And if you go and you just look, and this is just, you can, this, this is not controversial. Go and look and say, okay, you look at different points in time in America, the, the anthropology, what we thought of a person was, was functionally wrong. We, you know, we had a hierarchy of, you know, white people at the top, black people at the bottom, other ethnic groups are in between. And it was African-Americans who came and said, no, 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 the, the, the Christian doctrine of Imago Day that existed before us, we appropriated that and used that to reform American understandings of a person. And so the particular emphasis on the theological and cultural and political implications for the Imago Day over against like other um, Americans at the time who had a hierarchy. So mm-hmm. we're the ones who are saying eugenics and, and African-Americans being inherently unintelligent and all of these things are incorrect because of what the Bible says about what a person is. And so it's not that that idea that we're all made in God's image and therefore we deserve to be treated equally. It's unique to black people and the only we, we could see it. But because of our social location of being people who were denied the Imago Day, we emphasize that. And because there was a political and economic benefit for majority culture people to deny that, their social location in that case distorted their mm-hmm. anthropology. And so this anthropology and um, the, the, the universal nature of the family of God, which aren't unique to black churches, but are emphasized to black churches. The other one, I'll say three. I talk about canonical preaching a lot. Because of the way that um, we think about how you communicate text, anyone who's ever gone to a black church actually knows that like black churches probably preach more from the Old Testament than, than majority culture church, churches. And we tend to re- refer to all of these stories, no matter what the sermon is. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going <laughs> to show up somewhere in the sermon <laughs> yeah. because we tend to draw on the entire Bible to make any individual point. Mm which is a different way of thinking about how you do biblical interpretation than the oftentimes majority culture context, where it is, I need to find the particular verse that addresses a particular issue and then apply it. And African-American, because for a variety of reasons, one of which is because of the way the slavery was argued in um, the antebellum period, in which um, the, the, the enslavers would like to use one verse to kind of make their point. And African-Americans had to go for a canonical route to make their point, which is God willed our freedom. And so that habit of canonical interpretation isn't unique. Other people talk about canonical interpretation, but it's it's, it's a distinctive um, contribution or distinctive emphasis in the black church. And so what I'm really talking about is the, is the handing over of customs mm-hmm. that uh, mark black Christianity. Uh, and there's the best way to describe that community is to call it African-American because those are the people who are doing it. You're writing uh, for the New York Times now, uh, and so you're you're writing to Christians. Who a lot of us Christians who read the New York Times. Um, I, I was asked by Nick Kristoff at uh, Christmas. I think he said, "What what would you as a Christian say to New York Times readers?" And I said, "Well, I am both a Christian and a New York Times reader. So I don't think those are necessarily mutually yeah. exclusive categories." Yeah. There you have Christians, but you have a lot of really secular uh, people yeah. also. What have you learned uh, so far about being able to connect with that broad of an audience? Well, I think I've learned that everyone has to have their own voice. Mm. 
and, and how they write and how they engage in culture. And for me, I, I try to find a place where I can show people how being a Christian influences how I see the world. Mm. And that may seem to be like overly simplistic, but there's a way in which, you know, in every cultural issue that there's, there's people think like the Christian take and like what they might perceive to be the non-Christian take. Mm-hmm. And you can say, well, it's my job to give the Christian take, like so that people see Christians in the public square. We kind mm-hmm. of assert our place. And I tend to not just want to do that. It just doesn't mm-hmm. inspire me as a writer. What I try to do is to say, well, how can Christianity offer me a unique way into a topic? Mm. And rather than coming confidently, I talk about how I actually experience um, my faith, which is maybe because I'm one of those empathetic people. That's maybe my weaknesses. (laughs) I want to take on board the concerns and the fears that people have about Christianity Mm -hmm. and about how we function in the world, but also want to say, but there's still something beautiful about what we do and how we function. Mm. And so I tend to write in such a way that I'm not simply asserting, um, I'm not simply asserting, I may be asking perhaps. Mm. And maybe I want to suggest that my role is not the same role as an apologist or even a pastor. You know, so when when I'm, if I'm in a church, I can just say, open up your Bible, and look at this passage, and the Bible says it, therefore you do it. That's yeah. kind of how we do it. If I'm writing for CT, I can do that. I can just say, it says it here, therefore we mm-hmm. all agree we must do it. But what, what if the people don't agree with the text? Yeah. Then you have to show them, here's how Christianity shapes my imagination. Mm-hmm. And I try to write with the knowledge that life is hard. Yeah. And sometimes we can write as Christians in such a way that if you just believe this stuff, things mm-hmm. get better. And sometimes believing this stuff makes things objectively worse in the sense of you suffer more. Yeah, yeah. And being, it's, it's really easy. People talk about moderation. It's not about moderation. It's really easy to be a, a, a tribe. Mm-hmm. Tribes have speaking tours. Tribes have natural places where they buy your books. Tribes have like so, so, so circles on social media where they love you. It's, mm-hmm. If you stay in your tribe and you just read the tea leaves and you just do what your tribe tells you, yeah. you never get any trouble. But if you actually try to say, in each moment, how can I discern what God wants me to do and follow it, even if it gets me in trouble with my tribe on the left and on the right, Mm -hmm. then you often find yourself suffering. You're going to go, it would be much easier if I just took took the the majority side of the people I want to be with. And so when I write, I write with the realization of simple solutions aren't always as easy as we may think that they are. Mm -hmm. And I try to do all of that without sliding into a wishy-washy, therefore we don't know anything. It's like, I call it like a sophisticated reappropriation of orthodoxy. Mm. How do we find our way back towards truth? Acknowledging um, the ways in which other people who held to that truth disappointed us and acknowledging the ways in which getting at that truth is sometimes hard to get to. And so like those things aren't simple. Yeah, and my writing maybe uh, reflects that kind of that kind of struggle that I've had in my own life, and so there's sympathy for the reader rather than me yelling at the reader and telling the reader they should believe me or agree with me or be a bad person. 
You know, that is, that really resonates with me what you just said, because I was just talking to a friend yesterday about how many people I know who have fallen apart in their early 40s. Yeah. Uh, lost the faith uh, in, their, in their early 40s. Uh, and and that's, that's exactly, I mean, life is difficult. This carrying, cross-carrying yeah. Doesn't, yeah. doesn't stop at, at yeah. some point. So now, I mean, the, the funny part is um, not to circle everything back to the book. The reason it's called How Far to the Promised Land mm-hmm. is precisely because I thought there's, there's so many times, not just in my life, but in the life of my family, where it felt like we were going to make it, but we weren't there yet. Mm-hmm. And there was more journeying to do. And the point of How Far to the Promised Land, it's just the, isn't this the question, right, that we're always trying to get to this place we can just like stop and rest. Yeah. Like we've done it. And the truth is like none of us makes it to the promised land this side of, of, of God's return. Mm-hmm. But no matter how far we get, and this is the thing that I think that I'm trying to get in the book, no matter how far we make it, each person's struggle, and this is, this is like the kind of the, the, one of the central theses of the book, each person's struggle to try to find that place is instructive to us not just this objective less, object lessons on our way, but each individual life and the struggle to find meaning is beautiful and important. Mm. And sometimes we only think of valuable lives as the people who make it further down the road to what we think of the promised land is. But if I am someone who grew up in a context of poverty, and most of the people who I know lived and died in poverty, then I either say all of those lives were wasted mm. Or I say God was at work even in those difficult and broken people. Mm. And that those people didn't just like spur me on to like out of those communities, but their individual lives matter. Like the the central character in the book is, who's interestingly enough, rarely in the book. He's at the beginning and the end. And he comes and goes, is my father. Mm -hmm. And he left us when I was a young kid. And my life was definitively shaped by that decision. But I want to say, well, who was he apart from that failure, apart from what he played in my life? What can I understand about who he was Mm. and the struggles he went through? How does understanding that teach me something about what it means to be a person? And so I don't know if any of us make it, Russell, to the promised land, Mm -hmm. like apart from when God returns. Yeah. Um, Because maybe we're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're we're in in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. 
potato. All my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. When you set out to write How Far to the Promised Land, this is yeah. different than the other stuff that you've yeah. written. This isn't New Testament scholarship. Yeah. It's not uh, It's not essays. This is memoir. It may be the hardest kind of memoir because it's a multi-generational yeah. memoir. Yeah. Uh, what prompted you to, to do that? Well, interestingly enough, the truth is, you know, I, I realize now that books are hiding in other books. Mm-hmm. So if you look, if you open up Reading While Black, um, it says this book is dedicated to my father who died during the writing of this book. So whatever else I am, I'm always your son. Mm-hmm. And everybody who read Reading While Black and opened it thought this was very sweet. Like he dedicated it to his father and they imagined this really positive relationship. Mm-hmm. with me and my father. People have talked to me about it tons of, tons of times. But actually, that wasn't true. We didn't have a relationship at all. I was influenced by all of the things that he didn't help me with. Mm-hmm. And his, 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 his absence led, me, led us in part into poverty, which kind of informs all that happens in Reading My Black, the kinds of things that I experienced that I didn't write about. And so, it's, in a sense, even in Reading My Black, I was talking about him without talking about him. Mm-hmm. And so when it came time to write this book, it actually goes, believe it or not, up till 2017. So the, the chronology of the book goes up until Reading Why Black was written. And then it's kind of, that's a separate world. Mm-hmm. And so I think that what it really was is me trying to make sense of my story and telling the truth about my story. And what I really, so, so why did I do it? I, I tried to, I, I did it because I wanted to, to, to tell the truth about how I became the kind of person who wrote and saw the world in the way that, in the way that I do now. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it is really like all of the ways in which when, when, you, when you do something that, that, that succeeds, something like Reading My Black, and you become a New York Times columnist, people begin to ask you about your story. Mm-hmm. And like I said, they really want to hear the rags to riches story. They want to hear the story of it was hard and I overcame it. Mm-hmm. And I just really wanted the world to know that that's not the only story of what it means to grow up in poverty. Mm. That there are other people around who didn't make it and their stories matter too. Yeah. And I wanted to, to, to say that part of what it means to succeed in life is the responsibility of remembering and the responsibility to forgive. Mm. Um, and, that, and that I had to learn to have compassion towards my father, but I was going to have compassion towards um, other broken people in the world. Mm. And part of what I do is when I was a pastor is to say, our stories aren't over. We aren't the worst things that we have done. And I said that was true about everybody else but it wasn't true about my own family sometimes. Mm, mm. And I said, I can't preach about grace if I can't find a way to extend grace to someone who harmed me. Mm. And the process of writing, the book is about 
um, the stories that that I told or that I discovered while writing on the, his eulogy. And so the process of writing his eulogy of a man who I didn't know, but who was my father, really allowed me to forgive him in a deeper and more profound way. And it gave me the space in my own soul to forgive other people. And so if other people who read this story can find a way to see some beauty in the hard parts of their story and to find their way towards forgiving people who disappointed them deeply, then I think that that I, that I, that I have done my job and that I've helped them understand the important poor people aren't just the survivors. Mm. The important poor people are the people who are trampled underfoot. And maybe we need to create a society that doesn't trample so many people. Mm-hmm. How, one of the most powerful passages uh, for me is early on in the book where I believe it's your sister who calls you to tell you about the death yeah. of your father. It's a powerful yeah. uh, moment. Um, I'm wondering how how does that experience shape the way that, I mean, you're a dad. Um, yeah. How does it shape Esau McCulley, 2023 dad? Yeah. Um, I realize now, and me and my father are much different people, but I realize that at a certain point, our children are going to take stock of us as parents. Mm -hmm. They're going to leave our house and they're going to leave our influence and they're going to look back on their childhood. And I used to think that it was my job because my father had done such a bad job that I was going to be the perfect dad. Mm -hmm. I was never going to make mistakes. I was always going to love them. I was always going to have the wise words to say. But because my father failed me, I was very keenly aware of every time that I failed them. Mm -hmm. And I realized that no matter how much I love my children, I'm going to fail them. I can't be everything to them. Mm. Well, then what does that mean? What can I do? Um, what I can do as a father is not be perfect, but I can love them as best as I can, and I can point them to the person who can love them perfectly. Mm-hmm. In other words, I hope that at the end of, as they look back upon their experiences of living with me and my wife, they say, those were flawed people, but they loved us as best as they could via the love of Jesus. And even if they didn't do everything right, they pointed me to the person who would never let me down. And so I now see my parenting mostly as testimony. Not in the sense that like every single day I tell my kids about the Romans road, Mm -hmm. but that I'm trying to love them in such a way that the love of God that I talk about is plausible in their lives. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like that's what I can do as a father. I can't be, I used to think it was my job to kind of undo every mistake that he did. Mm -hmm. Everything he did bad to me, I would do good to them. But that doesn't give them the freedom to be who they are. It's like them stuck in this play. And the only way to free them from the play of them having to replay the role of me and I replay the role of my father, like Macaulay's part two, mm-hmm. was for me to just love them as best as I could. Yeah. And when I failed them to acknowledge it and to apologize and to say, dad's inadequate mm-hmm. as much as he loves you, but God has not failed you. And so that's what I try to do. And mm-hmm. and. Um, and, and what I saw, and I don't want to give away all of the stuff. I want people to read it because I want them to get there. But sometimes messed up people 
love you in messed up ways. Mm-hmm. And you can't see that the bad things that they do were their own attempts to do good things. It sounds mm-hmm. odd to say it that way. Like you can't see, like when you're a kid, you just don't know addiction, right? Yeah. So because you don't understand addiction, you see like them pawning your VCR as malice towards you. Yeah. Like my dad took my Nintendo because my dad hated me. Instead of my dad took my Nintendo because there was a biochemical reaction that he couldn't necessarily overcome. And that when I was a pastor, if I had someone who had addiction, I had a lot of compassion. But I didn't have that same kind of compassion for my father. And so just understanding that like broken people can try to love you um, and that love is going to be distorted in a million ways by their own inadequacies. And I have more compassion on that now than I did when I was a kid. And I hope that it one day, even though it's not drugs, it's whatever my inadequacies are, my children find that for me as well. Mm, that's powerful. You know, it, that's true, I think, um, to greater and lesser extents, no matter what uh, parenting is. I, I, I lost my dad to uh, three years ago. And one of the things, uh, writing the eulogy like you did, it's yeah. a, it, it's, at least for me, it's a form of grieving. It is. Uh, and, uh, and, and that was what I could do. I'm a writer. Yeah. I can sit down and write the eulogy and I felt like I was doing something. But one of the things I realized uh, as, as I get older is how much when you're a kid, whether your parents are present or absent, you always assume that they have a script. Yes. That they're either that they're either following or ignoring. And uh, I think it was in the months after my my dad died that I started realizing how much I just assumed. Well, it was wrong. You ought to you ought to do it yeah. this way. <laughs> and and that's yeah. not what life is like. And it was it was a little bit it, it's getting easier to understand. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, there was a time when I was really, I think, spiritually judgmental of my dad. Yeah. Because, you know, he was the one who would never go to church with us. He was always yeah. there, but he would never go to church with us. Until and it wasn't until later I realized, yeah, he grew up in a parsonage right next to a Southern Baptist church where the business meetings would come to his house uh, yeah. all the time. You know, there's something about just seeing that and realizing it that humanizes. You know, one, of the thing, one of the things that was um, interesting is that when you're a kid, you think the story starts when you're born. Yeah, yeah. And you're like the key moment. But... My parents, this is not profound, but they existed before me. Uh-huh. They had a relationship that existed before me. And my father had a childhood. And I began to realize, like you said, oh, you can't understand him without understanding what happened to him and how those things influenced him. And it doesn't undo all the bad things that he did, but it puts it in context. Yeah. And when I learned, like, me and my father, probably in the first 33, 34 years of my, of my life, probably never had a conversation more than five or 10 minutes. And so I didn't know anything about him. Mm. I mean, I knew that he was, he drove a truck, 
that he had a drug addiction, that he was in and out of jail, and then he died. I mean, I knew that before. But I didn't know his story until really he passed away. And I went back and asked his his sisters and these other people. And that is how the book opened up. It, It opened up because you can't simply tell my story or his story without putting the whole family in. That's why it's called One Family's Journey. And so I think that contextualizing people doesn't always solve all the problems, but it does open up the path, as we talked about earlier, towards empathy. And I think I have much more empathy towards my father um, than I did. And and this is not, people who read the book will probably think that's a shocking thing to do. One of the other things is like really weird is how can you love someone who really, really does bad things. Mm-hmm. And when you're a kid, you don't have anybody else to love. Yeah. So you don't have like an option of, of imagining another father. You just want a better version of the father that you have, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, and so I was trying to get at that feeling of, what does it mean to love someone who hurts you? And how do you make, and the easiest way to, to do that is to, when you get older, to transform that love into hate. Because mm-hmm. you love them and then they couldn't be what you wanted them to be, so you hated them. Mm-hmm. But then hate is kind of ultimately corrosive. Well, how do you find your way out of that hate? And that's what I was trying to get at at different points. Well, I think you succeeded. Uh, and, and one of the things that you did uh, in the book is it's really hard to communicate what you just said, loving people who hurt you without saying, therefore, it doesn't matter that they hurt you. And yeah. and you managed to show that and give an imaginative picture of, of the, yeah. the reality of that without, uh, without sliding into that at all. Yeah. I wonder, uh, you are a military spouse. Yes. And I'm a military dad. And I know we've had a lot of military spouses and parents that listen to this uh, show and kids. Um, And I'm wondering, what have you learned about life being a military spouse and dad? And I would say this is another example of nuance. I mean, what people imagine the military to be versus what it really is, is is often different. Like how would I describe the military as someone is looking from the outside? But what I would say is, you know, they're like the rest of the world. They are just trying, oftentimes they need jobs. They need to take care of their families. Some are motivated by patriotic concerns. Some just fell into the military because it was something to do. And then they fell in love with the, you know, the, the, the patriotic aspects of it. But what I saw as people who are under really difficult circumstances, trying to have healthy marriages and raise their children well. So, for example, you move every two to three years in the military. Mm-hmm. And so what does it mean where your kids meet one group of friends and then they, you know, they, they, they connect with them then they're off to the next place? And you begin to see how human community can actually embrace people. The best and most warm communities I ever had was military communities. Yeah. Nobody welcomes you like the military because they understand what you're going through. And so it's amazing what it would be like to be stationed somewhere and have friends within a few months. And then you leave the military and you could be a place for two or three years and nobody invites you to their house. Yeah. And so I would say that the military community understands the difficulties of the life that they live. And so they support one another in ways that even maybe the church could learn from. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to say, 
you will not, you don't have to be a stranger in this community. And I would say the military does a great job of that. Um, I would say that um, it, 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 it is not easy to deal with having someone who you love and who you care about just disappear for mm-hmm. six to nine to 12 to 18 months. And it's not even just the danger because some diplomas are dangerous, but it's just a separation. How do you function as a family? How do you then reincorporate um, things? You begin to see like the long-term ramifications of previous military decisions. So we were stationed in Japan and the tensions between America and Okinawa from World War II are still there like because of the presence of a military basis. So you don't just see what it means to be an American soldier now. You see the ramifications of the decisions that we made um, 50 years ago. And so it, it, it does introduce you to the complexity. And the other thing is like, we tend to think of the military as one thing. Mm-hmm. It's not It's not Republican or not Democrat. It's not independent. Everybody's there. If yeah. you exist in society, you exist in the military. And um, the military is in that sense, like America. And, 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 like, and sorry, there's so many things I could say. Like the, like the old saying about the Catholic church, here comes everybody. Here comes everybody. <laughs> but here's the other thing. Here's the other thing. Maybe this, this will be the thing. It is one thing, and maybe, and I'll say this for my, my military, my military um, families. It's one thing to say, I support the troops as some kind of vague statement. And yeah. then you put up a flag and it's kind of political. But like, what does it mean to say, can the enlisted people live a livable wage? Yeah, yeah. Can, do you have the kind of resources to take care of veterans after they get out? In other words, I sometimes get frustrated when supporting the military simply means I generally think that militaries are good mm-hmm. versus what kind of things do our military servicemen and their families need to thrive and how can I support that? Mm-hmm. And trust me, like simply saying I support you is not the same as giving practical support to people. Yeah. And people don't see it. I remember when I was, um, when my wife deployed, I was, um, cause she was a reservist. And so we were out in like normal world here at Wheaton College. She was going eight and a half months. And like nobody, and Wheaton was great. So I don't want to say that I'm criticizing the people, but they didn't understand what that was like. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you mean she's gone? And like they knew about it, and it, but they didn't really, there was nobody around who had also gone through that. And so, but in my military community, they would have understand exactly what that was like. And they would able to support it. But because we can't imagine it, <clears throat> we sometimes tend not to know even how to help. Yeah. And so I just want to say that I have a lot more compassion and understanding of the sacrifices of not just the military, but their families. Um, than I would have had had I never been a part of it. Best church experience that Maria and I have ever had, hands down, was a congregation right by an Air Force base that was made up almost entirely of Air Force people or retired Air Force people. And it was because of exactly what you're saying. They knew how to make community really quickly. They knew how to welcome people and see who was lonely and incorporate them. And I remember thinking, 
uh, one time, wouldn't it be great if the church was teaching this to the Air Force rather than the Air Force teaching this to the church? Yeah. Well, the book is called How Far to the Promised Land, One Black Family's Story of Hope and Survival in the American South. It's out, I think, September the 12th. Yes. But you can go ahead and pre-order uh, that yes. now and it will be here. Uh, it'll, it'll be here when it, uh, when it comes out. And so, Issa, one last question. Okay. Um, you wrote this memoir. Yes. Uh, what are some memoirs that you would say are among your favorites? Man, it, I mean, am I allowed to say that everyone should probably go and read our buddy Beth Moore's memoir? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to say like I've read, only these counts of memoirs, but like some of Martin Luther King's self-reflection about his life. I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. I read James Baldwin's mm-hmm. um, kind of autobiographical stuff. Those were the ones that I kind of think about as far as important ones. I don't know if I can think of another one that's jumping out in my head. I mean, obviously, one of the things, and maybe I'll put it this way. This might sound like to completely derail the conversation, (laughs) but I kind of wanted to write a black seven-story mountain Ah, or a black like surprise by joy. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. In other words, there's a lot of spiritual journey biographies. Now the people say like, how is this in there? It's in there. Yeah. And there are a lot of kind of even Augustine's confessions of these stories of people going through this process of finding God in the midst of these difficult circumstances. And even though I couldn't identify with those circumstances at all, they spoke about something about what it meant to be human and I could kind of travel along with it. Mm-hmm. And so there is a story of forgiveness and all of those things. But like the person moving through their story making sense of it is me. Yeah. And part of what it means to make sense of that story is finding God in it. And so if people read to the very end and they see it in different places, the chapter call and response and the closing and the eulogy kind of gets to it. And so what I really wanted to evoke was the sense of not just here's a story of learning to forgive, but it was inseparable from my own spiritual making sense of what it meant for me to be a Christian to understand my past. Mm, mm-hmm. And so Seven Story Mountain might seem to be like, a black Seven Story Mountain might be an odd way to describe how far to the promised land. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that I get it. I, I think I think you're onto something there. I can see it. So yeah, I would say Thomas Burke. It's funny, it's when you said memoir, I thought secular, but no, something like C.S. Lewis's um, Surprised by Joy and Thomas Burton's Seven Story Mountain. There's another one and it's not a memoir, but they're, um, I think, like four biographies. It's called The Life You Save May Be Your Very Own. Oh, that's great. Oh, yes. That's one of my favorites. So all of those kinds of stories were influencing what I was trying to do. Yeah, that that is a fantastic book. And yeah. and uh, also, I mean, Baldwin is so gripping. Uh, yeah, as, as a, quotes. So like, yeah. what, happens, what happens if, like, sorry, I don't want to be overly ambitious. What if you just toss God into the middle of between the world and me? Mm-hmm. And that Tanahasi isn't just, you know, making sense of the struggle, but it's the struggle in the context of where is God in the midst of all of this. Mm-hmm. And that's not an easy, I mean, that's not, it's, it's not, des- I hope y'all buy it because it's not designed to be easily digestible. But mm-hmm. I felt like I couldn't tell a true story about any of this 
without including the spiritual struggle in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I'm glad that you asked me that. Like all of those kinds of stories are floating around in the back of my head when I was working on it. I sometimes, when I'm rereading Baldwin's, I think it's Go Tell It on the Mountain. I think this is where where he has this uh, section uh, talking about being a boy preacher and seeing... Kind of seeing the the backside of it and starting yeah. to think it was just acting. Yeah, I mean it's it's really just heartbreaking. Yeah. You almost want to get in a time machine and go backward and say yeah. uh, it, it introduce James Baldwin to a different vision of Jesus than what a lot of people have seen. Yeah, so yeah, I mean even even it's in it's in there. Sorry, it's in the souls of black folks. It's in like yeah. in other words, a lot of. African-American intellectual essayist genre has a spiritual component Mm -hmm. that sometimes gives way to cynicism. I'm not making any statements about anyone's, Mm -hmm. I'm just speaking about like this vibe that I get. Yeah. What happens if some of those writers found a way not to, uh, through that deep cynicism, into a place of articulate hope. Now, sometimes there's an echo of a whisper of something and you got to go, maybe they found their way. But what if no? What if if on the other side, they found this robust anchoring in like the person of Jesus himself as a means of carrying their story forward? And how could you tell that in a way that doesn't feel like we're overly simplistic? Mm. And so all of those people like Baldwin, Coates, the boys, all of those people, Malcolm in a certain sense, Martin in a certain sense, are all there. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston, all of these people are there with me as I'm writing. And I'm, and I'm trying to enter into those conversations on my own terms. Mm. Well, the book is beautiful. How far to the promised land it will, it will really, you'll be glad you, you read it. Uh, so just uh, listeners, you will be glad you read it. Just trust me on that one. Esau McCauley, thank you so much for being with me today. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Hosted by Russell Moore. Produced by Ashley Hales. Associate producers, Abby Perry and Azurae Phelps. CT administration provided by Christine Kolb. Social media by Kate Lucky. Director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens. Production assistance provided by Core Media. Audio engineer is Kevin Duthu. Coordinator is Beth Grabencourt. Video producer is John Rowland. The theme song for the Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. 